What's fascinating is that when neuroscientists use fMRI technology to look at the brain, they see that reacting and responding, they compete for the same resources. So it's a zero sum game. You cannot both react and respond at the same time. So just by going through this pause, process, plan, proceed, we shut off what neuroscientists call the rage pathway in our brain. And we turn on this seeking pathway or this more responsive pathway. And not only do we do better, but we feel better. And all the fancy neuroscience in the world, everyone's had this experience. Like you cannot be pissed off or overwhelmed about something at the same time that you're intellectually trying to problem solve and work on it. Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, Adam Taggart. Disruptive change is everywhere these days. The world is still recovering from the shockwaves unleashed by both the COVID pandemic and the war in Ukraine. New technologies like artificial intelligence threaten to upend our relationship with work. And financial markets have made wild swings over the past two years. Meanwhile, the risk of the economy falling into recession next year is concerningly high. How can we prevent ourselves from being victims of unpredictability in such an ever-changing world? To find out, we've got the good fortune to sit down today with national best-selling author Brad Stolberg to talk about the key insights from his brand new book, Master of Change, How to Excel When Everything is Changing. Brad, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Uh, it's a real pleasure. Appreciate you taking time from all your busy activities from, from having launched this new book, which has just been out for just a couple of weeks so far. Um, Longtime wealthy end viewers may recognize I'm in a different, uh, got a different uh, background here. I'm recording this from the road. So I appreciate your flexibility in, in making this happen while we both have a lot going on, a lot of change going on in our lives. Um, so Brad, uh, you know, the topic of today's conversation is going to be change. And, and how do we not get overwhelmed by it? And, and maybe how can we even use it uh, to our benefit going forward? Let's start with your new book. Um, why, why did you write this book and why now? Yeah, I wrote this book because we are undergoing so many rapid changes. Uh, you mentioned them in the introduction to the podcast, so I don't have to retread those waters societally but also in our individual lives, uh, we go through constant cycles of order, disorder, and reorder of these disruption events. Uh, examples can include marriage, divorce, having kids, kids leaving the house, starting a new schooling program, graduating, uh, promotions, layoffs, big successes, hard defeats and failures. So we think that change is the exception when in fact it's the rule. And um, the kernel of the idea for this book, it was mid 2021, I guess early 2020, We've been living with the pandemic for the better part of a year. And I remember being in my kitchen on my wife's iPad, reading the headlines of the day. And it didn't matter if the publication was right, left or straight down the center. Everything was written in the spirit of when are things gonna get back to normal? And something about that just rubbed me the wrong way. I didn't know what at the time, but there was something about that framing of back to normal that just didn't make sense. And um, that kickstarted an intellectual exploration of change, of why we resist it, why we try to avoid it, why we try to get back to normal. And 
ideally trying to uncover some evidence-based tools to help us navigate uncertainty. Um, so I'd say it's a long-winded answer to your question, a whole lot of rapid and accelerating societal, macroeconomic, geopolitical change, and then also just the personal changes that we all go through, myself and middle age included, like, you know, life is very stable in many ways when you're growing up and then you hit middle age and there's just all this change. And I felt personally like I didn't have a toolkit and I went out and I tried to find one and I couldn't. Um, so as an author, you write the book that you need and you write the book that you think other people need. And it was a nice Venn diagram on this topic. All right. Well, you know, we, gosh, we, we live in an age where, you know, in many ways people feel more overwhelmed than perhaps they, they have in, you know, any other generation, at least in recent memory. And we've got, you know, high rates of depression and substance abuse and burnout and, you know, quiet quitting. And I mean, there are all these terms that we now have as a, as a society for people that are, you know, getting to this point of just sort of saying like, I, I just can't do it anymore. Right. So clearly it seems like a book that's coming at an appropriate time. And, uh, and I want to connect this as well to some previous discussions that we've had on this channel. Um, probably even most directly the work of demographer Neil Howe and his concept of, of the fourth turning, um, yep. which is a period of, 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 of intense change. Right. Yep. So I'm, I'm really hoping we can overlay some of your framework from your book on, hey, how somebody might make it through a fourth turning, you know, without becoming collateral damage to, to all that change. Um, but, uh, you know, having, having gone through your book and having gone through some of your recent writings, um, this concept of uh, the, the the way to persevere is is not through rigidity and, and always getting back to where you you were before, but it's sort of this 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 to the concept of sort of of flexible evolution, if you will. And there's a, a term for this called allostasis, which actually goes back thousands of years. Correct? Yeah, that's right. So there's these two competing models of change. And the first is called homeostasis. And a lot of people have probably heard of this. And homeostasis is actually the model that goes back thousands of years, really since the beginning of empirical science. And it describes change as a cycle of order or stability, then disorder or chaos, and then getting back to order. And homeostasis says that healthy systems inherently like stability and therefore they ought to resist change and anytime they face change they should try to get back to where they were as fast as possible allostasis is a more recent term in about two decades ago some researchers stepped back and said you know homeostasis isn't actually the best fit model for change when you look at flourishing individuals organizations even entire societies they don't follow that homeostasis model yes they crave stability but that stability is always recreating itself. So allostasis describes change as a cycle of order, disorder, reorder. So it says, yes, we do crave stability, but that stability is always somewhere new. And whereas homeostasis pits us against change, allostasis puts us in conversation with change. It says the change is something that we participate in, that yes, change shapes us, but we also shape change. And I think the etymology of these two words really elegantly captures the, 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 the big difference. So homeostasis comes from the Latin root homo, which means same, and stasis, which means standing. So it essentially argues that we achieve stability by staying the same. 
Allostasis comes from the Latin root allo, which means change or variable, and then stasis, which means standing. So it argues that we achieve stability through change. And it has this beautiful double meaning, which is, yes, we can be stable through change. And the way to be stable through change is by changing, at least to some extent. So again, homeostasis pits us against change. Allostasis says, enter the river of change and participate in it. And that is your best chance at stability. Okay. And I'm glad you ended there with the river of change, because I think that's what I was remembering from your writings is, is you talked about the Greek philosopher Heraclitus. Heraclitus. That's right. You talked about entering, you, you can't enter the same river twice, right? Which you said was a really good allegory for allostasis. And that is a thousand years old. So I guess you're right. The, the, the ancient wisdom thinkers and philosophers were onto this. It just took the, the scientific community uh, a couple millennia to, um, to catch up. So yeah, I think that's like the first big thing for listeners, right? Is it's very easy to get trapped in thinking of change as this order disorder back to order and that we want to be stable, so we're going to resist it. And I think much more realistic is thinking of change as an ongoing cycle of order, disorder, reorder, and we are always somewhere in that cycle, right? Like, we're always somewhere in the cycle of order, disorder, reorder, and just knowing this and being able to say, hey, things are pretty stable, I'm in the order phase. Or, whoa, there's a pandemic, there's a war, I just got a divorce, I just had my first kid, I just got a cancer diagnosis, I am squarely in the disorder phase. And I don't have to like it, but I have to accept that's where I am. And the goal isn't to get back to where I was before. The goal is to get to a new stability somewhere new. All right. So let's let's talk about that for a moment. So so how does one actually practice this? I, I guess I guess it, maybe before we get there, like what, what, what are the best practices for um, I'm going to go back to the words that I used, uh, which you can feel free to, to replace with better words, but sort of this flexible evolution, yeah. right? Like my, my conditions have changed or there's lots of conditions changing around mm -hmm. me. Um, how do I, you know, how do I surf that change as opposed to just try to resist it, right? I, I, I go back to kind of that Aesop's fable about the, the oak tree and the, the reed, right? Where the, 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 the windstorm comes and the oak tree tries to, which is known for being so strong, but tries to resist the wind by not moving and it actually cracks in half where the very flexible reed makes it through the windstorm afterwards, right? So how do we how do we surf that those winds of change? Yeah, I love it. It's such a great fable and such a nice way of framing this um, this topic. So the, the construct that I introduce in the book um, that my research and reporting led me to is very similar to what you said. I call it rugged flexibility. And at first, these two terms seem very diametrically opposed, like you wouldn't find them together, right? To be rugged is to be tough, to be determined, strong, hard. Uh, to be flexible is to be soft, supple, as you said, to bend without breaking. Yet, in my research and reporting on individuals and organizations that were able to navigate change and uncertainty really well, they weren't rugged or flexible, they were rugged and flexible. So you marry these two qualities and you get this gritty endurance and anti-fragility that can really help you evolve through change. So if that's the language or the construct, then all right, well, what does it mean? How are you actually rugged and flexible? And the way that I've come to think of this is our sources of ruggedness are our core values. Uh, these are the things that we aspire toward, that we find really make us who we are. 
Um, these can be our governing life philosophies or theses about how the world works, about how we work in the world, about who we want to be. Um, some examples to, to, to make it really practical, core values could be health, autonomy, intellect, wisdom, kindness, reputation, creativity, compassion, knowledge, so on and so forth. And those are our sources of ruggedness. That's what we hold on to. Flexibility means applying those very differently over the course of our life to meet the moment as things change. And this actually comes out of evolutionary theory. So if you think about evolution, which is the biggest, grandest change on empirical record. And when evolutionary biologists study species that have very good long runs that flourish over a long period of time, what they find is that these species, they have these two core competencies. On the one hand, they have central features which are these things that do not change. These are like the sources of ruggedness. If these things change, the species would no longer be recognizable. It wouldn't be what it is. But then outside of those central features, they're extremely adaptable and flexible on everything else. And they're even flexible on how they apply those central features. So I think the first thing is identify what are the core values of myself as an individual, of my family unit, of my organization. Uh, if I'm an investor, like what are my core values of investing? know those really well, and then use those to help navigate uncertainty and the unknown when there's change and say, well, how do I now take these core values and apply them to the situation at hand, whatever it may be? That's great. I, um, I've, I've done some work in sort of the, the, the science of, you know, finding your right career and whatnot, um, written a few little books about this. And what you're saying makes me think of, of, of a similar framework there, which is, what you're saying here is you, you want to get really clear on what your core values are, right? And that, I, I would say, that's identifying the, the points on your compass, right? Having a true north, knowing where north, south, east, and west is, right? That that, that Those are the things that don't change. The flexibility is using the compass to read and navigate the map or or the terrain that you're in, right? Exactly. And what's so nice is once you have that compass... It's still scary and discombobulating going into disorder. Like no one likes that disorder phase. But if you have a compass in your pocket, it's like, you know, there's some ground that you can stand on. Uh, and that goes such a long way to help you feel secure and stable throughout change. All right. So um, I'm curious in your your study of writing a book and studying change, um, where should people be placing the majority of their their focus in terms of trying to, you know, get their compass together and then figuring out, you know, how to react in real time to changes that's going on. And by that, I mean sort of the macro and the micro, right? Mm -hmm. We've got a lot of big, big things that are going on right now and things that that may come in the future. And I, you know, mentioned a few of them, right? And we may go into recession next year, right? AI might end up totally disrupting, you know, the whole labor market. Um, I, those are the very macro things, right? Um, and then the micro things are sort of, you know, a lot of the things happening in our own personal lives, like you mentioned, you know, oh, we've got a sickness in the family. Oh, you know, we've got a new birth or a promotion or just whatever, um, just unexpected change disruption, right? Is there, um, I guess, given given the folks that you're talking to and the way you're looking at this, do you prioritize one or the other? Do you do it 50-50? Do you just manage to the hottest burning fire? I mean, how does this all work? Yeah, I think that you want to um, 
you want to say like what is most near to me and what is most important in terms of prioritization of where to focus and then also like what can you control and what can't you control and i think a trap that so many people myself included sometimes fall into is we spend a lot of time on things that we can't control and we're not actually even working on taking productive action or solving a problem or just worrying and thinking about the thing instead of going to the areas where we actually have a pretty strong locus of control. Got it. And it's going to interrupt, but this is the part of the book where you say respond, not react, right? That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And when we have a strong locus of control, um, we can actually influence the situation quite a bit more. Um, and that's right. I talk about the difference between responding and reacting, which I think is so important for any kind of change. Uh, reacting is very emotionally, instinctively hot. Uh, it's when we snap. You know, if you ever snapped on a significant other or friend or kid, that's reacting. It doesn't feel good after. Like, no one ever is proud of themselves because they right. reacted. Whereas when we respond, we're thoughtful, we're deliberate, uh, we're discerning. And um, even if we don't necessarily make the decision that in hindsight was right, when we're responsive to a situation, we tend to sleep well at night. We can be proud of ourselves. And I have a framework for this because every book like this needs at least one framework. Um, and I think this is really useful. When we react, we follow the path of the two Ps. So something happens, there's a change, there's uncertainty, and we panic and then we pummel ahead. We often regret it. When we respond, we follow the path of the four Ps. So we pause and we gather ourselves and we realize that like, whoa, I, I am thrown out of order. I'm now entering disorder. We process what's happening. Research shows that simply naming the emotion that you're feeling helps create some space between you and it. Mm -hmm. In that space, as so many wise philosophers have said, lies our freedom to do something about it. So we process what's happening. Then we make a plan. We step back and we say, what are my skills, capabilities, resources? What can I control from what can't I? And only then do we proceed. And what's fascinating is that when neuroscientists use fMRI technology to look at the brain, they see that reacting and responding, they compete for the same resources. So it's a zero sum game. You cannot both react and respond at the same time. So just by going through this pause, process, plan, proceed, we shut off what neuroscientists call the rage pathway in our brain, and we turn on this seeking pathway or this more responsive pathway. And not only do we do better, but we feel better. And all the fancy neuroscience in the world, everyone's had this experience. Like you cannot be pissed off or overwhelmed about something at the same time that you're intellectually trying to problem solve and work on it. That's super fascinating. Um, and it, it goes right to something we've talked about in this channel and off a lot, which is why you should never make investing decisions uh, from a, from an emotionally charged state. Yeah. Uh, because to your point, I mean, you, you said they, you can only send one signal through the, the neuro, neural circuitry, right? You can you can send the panic signal or you can send the sort of pragmatic action signal. And if you're just making decisions from the panic side of things to the emotionally charged side of things. Yeah. Much more likely you're going to be making bad decisions in the short term that are going to hurt you in the long run. That's right. And, and you can think of an investing decision often is just navigating uncertainty. Like you're making, I mean, you're the pro, not me, but my understanding is like you're making probabilistic decisions and 
so much about change and navigating uncertainty is making probabilistic decisions. Like we never know what the sure thing is or what the right path forward is. But if we can be in a more responsive, pragmatic state, we do a better job of gauging probabilities, coming back to our core values or in, in, in your case, your investment thesis, and then actually making a decision that aligns with that instead of a, a very emotionally reactive one. All right. Yeah, there's something else that you talk a lot about in the book that I think is worth really just digging into for folks. Um, and, and I want to mention to folks, too, that that, you know, this is a, a channel of, of wealth building. Um, you're from a family of financial advisors. So, you know, you, you, you actually, yeah, I, I, I want to sort of walk with you in terms of how we can take some of your, your learnings from this book and apply it to the, the world of investing or at least wealth building. Um, but you talk about the importance of meaning and let, let me tell you why I see that as so important to the, the, the path of wealth building. And then you can, you know, either support that or refute that in your answer, um, which is, uh, you know, everything's probabilistic, like you said, right? There are no guarantees, right? Um, so, you know, I talk a lot about when, when they, they interview people who live to be over 100 um, about what really matters in life, they always say the same three things. Mm -hmm. They say it's quality of the relationships. It's always number one. Number two is living with purpose or having meaning. Like my life mattered in some way, right? I felt like I my days were well spent. The third is health. No surprise. You can't live to 100 if you don't have good health, right? Uh, but it's those three things. And meaning is one of the big three, right? And, you know, in, in, in life, there's no guarantee that if you do all the right things, the money is going to follow the way you would love for it to, right? But if you wake up in the morning and you're energized by what you're going to be spending your day doing, and at the end of the day, you feel like, you know, it was a day well spent, you, you made the kind of contribution to the world that you wanted to make, in many ways, that's winning life. Right. So it's a very important uh, mindset to keep in mind, you know, as you as you invest your time and your energies going forward from sort of a do I feel like I lived a rich life standpoint now for surfing change? Why is meaning so important? Ooh, yeah. So meaning is so important because there's just gobs and gobs of research that shows that if we can derive meaning out of challenge and struggle and pain and uncertainty and integrate that into our own personal narratives is a way that we've learned something or that we've grown. That is associated with long-term life satisfaction, well-being and flourishing. Now, it doesn't mean that all changes have to be meaningful and it doesn't mean that that meaning has to occur right away. Um, Grief, loss, uh, a layoff, um, a significant and unexpected loss of wealth. Like the worst thing to say to someone in the situation I'm thinking of, like the most extreme, a grieving parent, is you would never say, well, find some meaning in your struggle or write down three things you're grateful for. That would be so out of touch. So the bigger the change, the more time it takes for that meaning and growth to occur. And it very rarely occurs when you're in the middle of disorder. It tends to occur when you get to the other side, when you're in the reorder phase and you're looking back on it. But we do tend to make meaning and growth out of even the most harrowing changes, but we have to be patient with ourselves to find that. Now, for the smaller changes in our lives, we can make meaning really quickly. Um, and we can think of change in a way as strengthening like our mental muscle 
to meet the world on its terms and to then take productive action. So every time there's a change or something throws us off our guard, we can say, hey, like this is just strengthening my mental muscle to be able to make a wise, skillful, thoughtful decision amidst uncertainty, which as you mentioned, uncertainty is just the nature of reality. That's a great answer. You know, there's a lot of, of, of your work that reminded me of the work of Angela Duckworth and her book, Grit, right? Mm -hmm. and, and this this meaning element, I, I think is, there's a lot of overlap there in the sense that like, you know, I, I, the people that have the perseverance, you know, the grit to to eventually really succeed in life or flourish to use your term, right? They, they have to find meaning in the struggle because if they don't, well, then you quit, right? Right. You know, you, you, you just get totally dispirited and say, you know, screw this, uh, you know, it's it's too much or I'm wasting my time or whatever. And then your likelihood of actually ever achieving the goal, you know, obviously plummets. Right. So I guess I really can see how, you know, cultivating a sense of meaning or at least focusing on where the meaning is in adversity and in change is a real success factor to getting through it well. That's right. In, in a global sense of meaning, it doesn't mean that day to day everything has to be meaningful. Um, there are days when things don't feel meaningful. Um, and that's okay. Like, it's not okay if that's your everyday, then you, you ought to seek help from a therapist and, and maybe be evaluated for depression and, and get help. Um, so I don't want to minimize that. But not every day do I wake up filled with meaning and vigor. Some days I just kind of go through the motions. Right. I think it's it, 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 it's hard to interrupt, but I just want you to keep yeah. in your answer. Yeah. This is sort of why they talk about the importance of the why, which is another form of meaning, right? Which is like, that's what keeps you going, even when on the day-to-day -day basis, you can't necessarily always see the finish line or it just sucks. You're just having setback after setback. Yeah. 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 And, and just kind of knowing that like, all right, like I'm, I, I can get through this period of meaninglessness and the meaning will come back to me. Uh, I just need to keep showing up and acting on my core values. I find that core values are so much more tangible because things like purpose or meaning, when they're there and you feel them, it's great. But when it's not, it's kind of hard to force it. Like if you're having a really crappy day, you can't like contrive yourself into feeling really good about your why or your meaning. You can just feel crappy. But if you have your core values and your core values are health, relationships, wealth, you name it, you can still show up and say, even though I feel like crap, these are my values. I'm going to just start to take action on these values and give my mood a chance to um, to turn around. I think there's one other thing that has a really beautiful parallel to um, to wealth building and investing. And it's very much related to, to meaning and rugged flexibility as we go through change. And that is this idea of diversifying your sense of identity. Hmm. So I want to start by telling the story of Niels Vanderpool who is a world record holding double gold medal Olympic long course speed skater. So in the 2022 games, the most recent Winter Olympics, he won gold in the 10K and the 5K. Um, but prior to the Olympics, he was underperforming quite a bit. And he stepped back and he asked himself, well, why am I underperforming? And he identified fear. And then he stepped back and he said, well, why do I have all this fear? Why is this fear holding me back? And what he found was that his entire identity was fused with being a speed skater. There was no Niels Vanderpool outside of Niels Vanderpool, the speed skater. And that was a lot of pressure for him to carry, especially knowing that in his sport, people get injured, people age out of peak performance, people take one misstep once every four years, and that's your moment. So there's all kinds of change 
Right. So like if I'm no longer a champion speed skater, who am I? I? What am I? Who am I? I have nothing. Yet he knew that at some point he wasn't going to be. Mm -hmm. So in the lead up to the 2022 games, he did something that was unheard of for a world-class athlete of that caliber. And he took a normal weekend. So starting on Friday night to Monday morning, he did nothing that had anything to do with speed skating. He went out for pizza and beers with his friends. He got involved in his community. He went bowling. He went on hikes. He got into reading. And he developed these other sources of meaning in his life. And what he says is that allowed him to skate from a place of love and joy versus fear. Because he knew that even if things didn't go well in speed skating, there was still a Niels Vanderpool outside of it. He had other sources of identity. So there's two metaphors I use. With this crowd, the finance metaphor is a home run. You have a diversified portfolio. Why? Because if all your holdings are in one asset and that asset tanks, you're screwed. But if you have some diversification, you can lean on those other assets to carry you through. Yet with our identity, we often double down and just think of ourselves in one way. Right. And if that one thing changes, we're kind of screwed. So we want to diversify the sources of meaning in our life to help us get through change. So if a change comes and it gets at one part of our identity or one source of meaning, we still have the others to fall back on. And the other metaphor I like to use is this is a house. So if you imagine a house and your house only has one room and that one room floods, you're in big trouble. It's going to be very discombobulating. There's nowhere to go. But if your house has multiple rooms and one room floods, you can go take refuge in those other rooms while the flood sorts itself out. And our identity is like a house. We want to have multiple rooms in our identity house. And it doesn't mean that they each need to be the same size. It doesn't mean we need to be quote unquote balanced and spend the same amount of time in each room. It just means that we want to make sure that we're always maintaining enough important rooms so that there's some diversification in where we find our meaning, how we conceive of ourselves. So if there's a big change in one area of our life, we can get through it because we have stability in those other areas. Got it. And and just give an example of how this would manifest. Is this like, well, yes, I am a, uh, I use myself, you know, I'm a, I'm a financial YouTuber, uh, but I'm also a spouse. I'm also a parent. I'm also a friend. I'm also involved in my community. Uh, I'm also, I don't know, a fitness guy, right? I, yeah. I have sort of multiple senses of who I am. So if any one of those gets compromised, I still have the rest to kind of carry me through. That's right. And in a time when you put out or you have a big push on YouTube to grow your platform and to help people, and it doesn't go to plan or even just day to day, you put out a video you think is going to crush and it flops. Yep. (laughs) Yeah, it's part of the game, right? If you're going to play the long game, it's going to happen all the time. But then you go home and you're still a parent or you go to the gym and you're still on the treadmill or lifting weights. And like, you can still get wins there. Or the opposite, home life is really tough. Like your kids are growing up and your relationship with them is changing and you feel distance from your partner because again, that happens to people too. Well, then you can double down and work during that period. So it allows you to go between these different rooms as changes occur in each one of them. All right, all right, great, great explanation. All right, so just to get down to brass tacks here, the book ends with five key questions and 10 tools that really help people, you know, learn how to manifest this in their life as, as, as change swirls around them. Um, do you want to pull any particular ones out of those to, to let folks know about here? Yeah, there's a couple that I think are really important. Um, 
the first I'm going to come back to it is this notion of rugged flexibility and just knowing for that distinct domain of your life, like what are your values? What's your wealth building thesis? What do you care about? To your point about meaning, like what is your internal scoreboard? What's the stuff on your deathbed that you want to look back and be proud of yourself of? Know those like the back of your hand. And then when you feel overwhelmed and uncertain, ask yourself, what would it look like to live in alignment of my core values? How can I score well on my internal scoreboard? Use those things to navigate uncertainty and change. Great. And, and I, I hate to interrupt you just as you're about to list off the rest, but there's a really interesting debate that's been going on in this channel very recently that, that yeah. you might just really put your finger on. Um, so uh, bonds uh, have never had three, at least U.S. Treasuries have never had three consecutive down years in history since record keeping back to like the 1700s. Right. This year, it looks like they're going to. Right. Um, there have been a lot of people this year who have been saying bonds are really undervalued. Um, and when the Fed pivots and changes policy, um, the long term U.S. Treasury bonds should do really well because as interest rates come down, bond prices should go up. Um, so we've had some people on this channel recently who have, have said, hey, look, you know, I'm taking the long game here. Uh there's all these reasons why the bond market should and will eventually come back. And even though bond prices keep coming down right now, treasury bond keep, prices keep coming down right now, I'm increasing my exposure to this asset class because, you know, I believe in both the scope of history, but also the, the, the macro fundamentals all suggest that this is likely going to, you know, do well in the future. Um, but you're, you know, for them, they are doubling down as the price goes down, right? And there's a, another cohort that looks at that and says, oh my God, bonds' days are over. We're only going to have higher interest rates uh, from, from here on out. That, that, that's a, a follies game. You know, you're, you're, that's a Roach Motel strategy, right? Um, and, you know, for taking the side for a moment of the folks that are, are saying, look, bonds will have their day again. This is that sort of adverse change where they have to know what their compasses, right? They know what their values are in terms of, hey, this is how I evaluate investments. And they're telling me this is a really good investment, even though it's not performing well right now. So then what do I do about it, right? Do I eject or do I lean into to this? And some of the folks I've been talking to have been leaning into it, but it's it's, it's one of those instances where like, it's a it's it's not a fun place to be right now as a bond investor, right? And you've got to sort of determine what are you going to do? Are you going to capitulate and run? Or are you going to you know, lean into it, right? And each investor needs to make up their own their own choice. But I think what you're saying is, is start from a position of really understanding what you feel about this asset class, you know, what your personal situation is for risk tolerance and all that type of stuff, and then decide accordingly. That's right. Yeah, know your thesis for your value. And tying it back to my other point, uh, diversify enough so that your entire, you know, that your your house isn't just one room. It's not just the bond room, especially right now. Like if that asset class is going through unprecedented um, shifts and uncertainty and unpredictability, then you want to make sure, at least I would want to make sure that I have some other rooms in my portfolio that are a little bit more predictable and stable. Right. No, that's fantastic. And, and in the specific case of investing, maybe even uncorrelated to your, yes, your even the better. that you're making. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yes, that, that notion of like your rugged core values and then using them to navigate uncertainty. Um, I think something else is really important, a tool around expectations. 
So there's research that shows that our, our mood, or you could even say our happiness at any given moment is a function of our reality minus our expectations. Mm -hmm. so when our expectations are better than our reality, we feel like crap. <laughs> and um, in many ways, change is just our expectations going awry. You know, what we thought was going to happen doesn't. And the more that we resist that and live in delusional thinking and latch on to what we thought would be instead of what is, the more we suffer. So a model of change that says, okay, my expectations were off. How can I quickly align my expectations to reality um, so that then I can do something about it? I can meet the world as it is, not as I thought it would be. And I want to be clear because one common challenge to this is, so are you telling me I should set low expectations? And that's not what I'm saying. I think that internally for ourselves, we should set very high expectations of ourselves, but externally for the world, we should set at least accurate expectations. And it's very contrary to American or really even Western European thinking of be happy and everything's going to be great and be an optimist. It's kind of how we're conditioned to think, but we'd probably be in a much better position if we had a more pragmatic view that no, sometimes things aren't great. Sometimes things aren't going to be great. It's kind of like expect the worst and then be pleasantly surprised. And, and is it expect the worst, like not be an optimist, but be a pessimist? Or are you saying be a realist? Be a realist is what I'm saying. Yeah. Because, you know, we're our best when our expectations and our reality is a match. So ideally, like the Zen master of change and perhaps the Zen master of investing gets rid of expectations altogether and just says, this is what's happening. I can see it really clearly. But it's very hard for us mortals to achieve that. But if we can minimize the role of expectations and maximize just reality as it is, we tend to make better decisions as we navigate change. Yeah, I mean, that really is the whole practice, both of, of Zen as well as sort of the, the Stoics, right? Yep, that's they, right. They, yeah, they, they really were just about meeting reality and... Uh, doing the best you can with it, basically. Yes. Um, I think another important thing I could go on and on, but um, I want to be respectful of your time and listeners time. But um, there's a misconception that we need to feel really good and motivated to make progress and to get going. When in fact, it's often the opposite that's true. We need to get going to give ourselves a chance to feel good and motivated. Mm hmm. So we think, you know, you need to be motivated to act, but motivation actually follows action. And oftentimes in the midst of like big change and uncertainty, it's easy to kind of shut down, to feel so overwhelmed or to lose motivation. And instead of freaking out when that happens, just normalizing that and saying, all right, I've lost my motivation. I, I kind of feel apathetic or overwhelmed. But if I just show up and get started anyways, I give myself a chance to feel better. So... The shorthand way I think of it is you don't need to feel good to get going. You need to get going to give yourself a chance to feel good. Yeah. And this that, relates to change because, again, so often we, we isolate and we get overwhelmed and we shut down. And I think it's okay to feel those feelings, but just show up and get started on what's important to you anyways. And you often just feel better as a result of getting going. Yeah, I think that's really valuable because, um, you know, it, it goes that, expression that uh, humans uh, aren't uh, rational beings we're rationalizing beings that's right, right. um and, and so it's somewhat it's somewhat similar which is like i use a fitness analogy right like i work out in the mornings 
you know, most mornings I do not want to get out of bed and go work out. Right. But you kind of force yourself to, and, you know, you kind of begin to wake up halfway through the the workout and then you just sort of tell yourself, oh, well, I'm making my day better now. Right. But you had to kind of just push yourself into the rote movement itself. Right. So to, if, if you just identify, hey, if I just start action in these ways that I'm, I, I know are constructive, uh, even if I don't feel it in the moment right now, the more I do them, the more yeah, okay, I'll get in the groove and, and actually we'll start feeling good about what I'm doing. Yeah, it's it's the best example. So I'm also into fitness um, and I, I'm decent at it. And people just assume like, oh, I must love working out. I love having worked out. Yeah, <laughs> great um, way to put it. But yeah, most days I don't wake up itching to go to the gym. Most days I just have to force myself to get started. And then just like you, midway through the workout, I start to feel pretty good. But this just flies in the face of all like the inspirational videos that are, you know, find your fire and like hype speech, get motivated. To be clear, when you're feeling that way, that's great. Like ride those waves. We all have those days when we are feeling super motivated and those are great days. But if you're not feeling that way, it can become a very quick self-fulfilling prophecy where you freak out instead of just saying like, all right, I'm not feeling I'm feeling kind of flat, but I'm just going to get started and see what happens. Yeah. And what's interesting is, you know, sort of what's 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 serving us in this instance is a routine, right, where it's a set of actions that we've just said, I know I'm better off for doing these things. Um, and some might call that rigidity, but but it it, it it's you're shaking your head. And so I, I want you to but but it's it's sort of the, the rugged flexibility you're talking about, right, where it, it takes a little bit of structure and then it allows itself to to react to whatever's going on in the real world. OK, thumbs up for me. Yeah. 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 You, I mean, you read the book. So um, but yes, that is like that's spot on and how I think about it. Like the routine is the sense of ruggedness. And if you can have that predictability or that stability in your life, your brain really likes that. And by having that routine, it primes you to go meet the rest of the day and to go tackle all the unknowns. So the markets can be swirling out of control. You know, your teenager can be starting to drive for the first time. Um, the weather outside could be, you know, the climate could be warming, all these things that are real challenging changes. And I still wake up and I go to the gym or I still garden or go to church on Sundays. I still listen to country music on Fridays, whatever the routine is, doesn't even matter what it is. Just having that sense of predictability is like a happy, safe space that then energizes you to go take on all the uncertainty and complexity. So it's like a polarization, right? You want to have like solid, strong routine values, ruggedness, which then allows you to go meet change and be flexible and navigate uncertainty. All right. Great, great way to say it. All right. So in a second, we're going to talk about where people can go and get this book, um, Brad, but um but before we do, I want to go back to uh, Neil Howe and the fourth turning, right? So, um, you know, if indeed Neil's framework plays out as he thinks it will, and then by all evidence, it seems like it is continuing to play out that way, um, you know, we can expect more disruption as we go into the second half of this fourth turning, um, and we'll experience that as individuals, but but certainly societally, you know, fourth turnings for those unfamiliar with with how's work is is where the status quo basically breaks down and is that eventually replaced by by something new and and that then starts the next first turning um but there's a there's a lot of um you know destruction of of norms and and you know everything we're used to um so 
to go through a period like that, you know, obviously we as individuals need to be prepared for change. I think your book is really helpful in providing us with with ways to do that. Just curious your thoughts on on societally. Like mm. how, how do how do we societally deal with that type of change? How does society prepare to go through it? Is is it is it doomed just to kind of sleepwalk into it? Or is there a way, you know, for some of the some of the best practices you talk about um to play a role in 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 helping society manage this stuff a little bit more gracefully? Or is that just simply a function of however many people at the grassroots level adopt your your behavior as it bubbles up? Yeah, I think I think I'm gonna lean towards the latter. Um I think that like in in how's framework marrying it to mine, you'd say like it's massive societal disorder. And then eventually there's going to be a reorder. And I think what you're asking is like, well, how do you how do you minimize the carnage in between the massive disorder and reorder? Exactly. Because a lot of the past four turnings have been times of huge carnage, right? We're talking civil Economic war, World War II. Yeah. Yeah, it's really bad. Um yeah, I mean, I think if I had that answer, you know, I would I would hopefully be like in in some CIA room or something. Yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to put the weight of World no, War. No, but it's a great it's a great intellectual question. I think um, I think when people try to over engineer human behavior, uh, it almost always backfires. Um, and when people try to make predictions, like there's research that shows that you know prediction markets like often fail in these massive situations of, of unprecedented change. So. I always tread lightly here. Um, I do think that if I was a leader of of society in, in whatever capacity, I would really want to balance like trying to not change too fast and to hold on to some values that do make sense while then shifting on other values that are due for a change but still letting people feel like there's some ground underneath them. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, this kind of gets to like my, you know, if I could wave my hand, like my own personal like policy agenda would be like progressive libertarianism, I call it, which is like essentially like, you know, give everyone like a Taurus, have a pretty strong social safety net, like that's the ruggedness. But then on top of that, like let the market do its thing and, and people will figure out, the market will figure out the best way forward. But that only works in my mind if everyone has like their strong social safety net, like their Taurus, you know, mm -hmm. public schools, healthcare, whatever it is. Um, and I think a part of what's so discombobulating right now is a lot of people feel like they don't have that at the societal level. Um, and, and that causes a lot of distress and resentment and then and then pushback. Um, but I think this this is like it's it's a little bit outside of my pay grade. Um, <laughs> to wave my magic wand, but at the individual level, I think it is preparing for a period of, of disorder and into reorder. And again, knowing your values and what you stand for, knowing your own risk tolerance in terms of your assets and, and, and how you think about your investments. Um, and then being being willing to go dance with the disorder instead of resist it um, or, or get overwhelmed by it. Um, but I'm a non-dual thinker, right? So like there's two camps, right? There's like regulate the hell out of everything camp and then there's free market camps. And of course I'm like, well, like how about, you know, smart regulations and then let free markets do what they do. Um, but I think that there's just like been a loss of sanity and reason, um, which maybe happens with all fourth turnings. And um, it will be very interesting to see how things play out. All right. Well, um, folks, uh, you know, if, if indeed, 
Neil Howe is right, and many of the guests in this channel are right, that there is a lot more disruption lying ahead of us. Obviously, then figuring out how to navigate that well is sort of an essential skill that each of us at the individual level needs to practice. To learn how to do that well, you should definitely go get Brad's book. Brad, where can people find this book? I mean, it's, it's such a big national bestseller. It's pretty much anywhere books are sold, correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, if you order your books on the internet, you can get it from Amazon, uh, bookshop.org. It should be at your local bookseller. If not, you can request it. It's also on Audible. Um, so pretty much anywhere you get your books. All right. And for folks that uh, have enjoyed meeting you through this interview and would like to follow you in your work, in addition to getting your book, where can they go? Thanks for asking. Um, my website is my name, www.bradstalberg.com. And I am on the social media platform, Instagram, uh, where my handle is at Brad Stahlberg. Great. All right, Brad. And when we uh, when we edit this, we'll put up the URLs there so folks know exactly where to go. We'll also include them in the descriptions below the video here, folks, too. Um, all right. Well, look, um, just in wrapping this up, Brad, thanks. Super fantastic. I want to give folks two quick um, resources in addition to getting your book uh, that they should uh, consider. One is just a reminder to everybody that the Wealthy on Fall online conference is coming up fast. It's now less than three weeks away, Saturday, October 21st. Um, as a reminder, everybody who registers, even if they can't attend the event live, uh, you'll be sent replay videos uh, of everything, all the presentations, all the live Q&A. Um, so don't worry if you can't watch the full event live. You'll get those replays uh, within 24 hours afterwards. Um, best faculty we've ever had. Um, I've described the whole thing on the channel in the past, so I won't do it here. I just want to let folks know I interviewed Kyle Bass about 20 minutes before getting on here with Brad. Uh, his discussion alone, totally worth the price of the conference in full. Uh, great discussion with Kyle. Of course, he's just one of over you know 15 or so of, of the experts that we're going to have at this event. So it's going to be really uh, just super substantial this year. To go learn more about the event and to lock in the low early bird price discount, go to wealthion.com slash conference. And the early bird price discount expires this Sunday. So if you want to lock that in, Go do it now. Secondly, um, you know, Brad and I have talked about how uh, there's lots of financial implications for the type of change that's out there. Um, most people have a really tough time navigating them. One, because they just don't have the experience uh, or uh, in most cases, they just don't have the bandwidth, right? They've got real families uh, that they're uh, taking care of. They've got jobs. They're figuring out how to deal with the change. And each one of those things is Brad's done a good job of painting in this discussion. Um, so we highly recommend that for most people, especially with the type of, of potential future volatility we have, that you work with a good financial advisor um, who can be a good shepherd of you during that time period and help you make decisions from the uh, respond part of your brain, not the react part of your brain, as we talked about. If you've got a good one who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, consider scheduling a free consultation with one of the advisors that Wealthion uh, endorses. To do that, just fill out the short form at wealthion.com. Only takes a couple seconds. These uh, consultants, uh, these consultations are totally free. No commitment to work with these guys. It's just a free public service they offer to help as many people as possible position as prudently as possible today in advance of what might be coming. If you've enjoyed this conversation with Brad, would like to see him come back on the channel and want to wish him well with the sales of his new book, Please uh, cast your vote in support of that by hitting the like button, then clicking on the red subscribe button below, 
as well as that little bell icon right next next to it. Brad, I want to thank you so much again. It was a real pleasure meeting you here. Best of luck on the book. Um, would love to have you back on the channel uh, anytime you like, whether it's when you have a new book out or just an important new observation you want to share with the world. But if indeed, as times get uh, more and more volatile from here, would love to have you come back on and help uh, you know update folks on uh, navigating their way through uncertain change. Well, Adam, it's really been a pleasure. I appreciate you having me and I uh, thoroughly enjoyed our conversation. So thank you. All right. Thanks so much, everyone else. Thanks so much for watching.